Just to give a quick recap, if you haven't, I don't have time to go through chapters one and two. They are online. You can go and consider uh, what we've been talking about together as the body of Christ. Um, But Jonah chapter one and two are are an interesting picture of God doing some pretty incredible stuff and going to some great lengths to halt Jonah. Uh, Jonah is the man who has been tapped on the shoulder by God to announce to Israel God's words whether it's, hey, come back to me, or whether it's, remember me, or whether it's the word of the Lord, Jonah is the guy. But then he gets this strange tap on the shoulder to go to a people who do not know God. And Jonah runs. And what we know because of the scripture is that Jonah isn't running from Nineveh. He's running from God. He does not want to be in God's presence. And so in his brain, if I leave Israel where God is living in a box, I can go and actually get away from his voice. I can be out of his signal. I can be out of the Wi-Fi range. I don't have to listen to God. And we know that God actually throws a storm on the sea and the sailors freak out and there's this whole moment of realization that it's Jonah's fault that the storm is about to rip this boat apart and he's tossed overboard and God arranges for a fish to swallow Jonah, to rescue Jonah from himself. To rescue Jonah from his plans. Now, it was not pretty. It was not a submarine. It was not mermaids. It was not this wonderful picture of rescue. It was slimy. It was hot. It was sticky. It was messy inside the belly of a fish. Jonah has this come to Jesus moment. And he begins to thank God for his rescue. Because only God would think of something like this. And he has this moment with the Lord. It's recorded for us. And he prays this prayer. Salvation comes from the Lord alone. And then the Lord says, all right, fish, go puke him up on the beach. He does. And so we're kind of at that point of, well, here's the the point of the story, right? We're into chapter 3, and here's what we're supposed to do. So let's just read from chapter 3. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. This time Jonah obeyed in the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. Then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. Now there's a lot in chapter 3 that we could jump right to. 
But today, and even in this week and in this last several weeks as we've been going through, then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Has just rocked me. It's, it, he, he still spoke to him. Like, he didn't stop talking to Jonah. Like, he said something to Jonah in a day and an age where we want no mercy. Where we want people, when they screw up, we want them publicly humiliated. We live in a day and an age where, um, have you guys, I don't know if you've seen on YouTube how it should have ended, those videos that are really short, and like how it should have ended. How it should have ended with Jonah is, Jonah, go to Nineveh. No, squash. Anybody else not want to go to Nineveh? I'll go to Nineveh. That's how it should have ended, right? We live in a day and an age when an athlete makes a mistake publicly, when a public figure makes a mistake publicly, when they say or do something that offends someone, we want them crucified before our eyes. We say we want mercy, but we don't want mercy. We want to see justice. We want to see people crushed for their wrongs. And it's an indicator of our heart more than anything else. It's an indicator of what's wrong with me. Not them. Fool me once, right? Shame. Shame on. Fool me once. Shame on you. The point is, you're not going to fool me again. <laughs> Some of you know what I was doing there. It's okay. I know the phrase. Somebody else who led our country didn't know that phrase. <clears throat> once, one of the reoccurring themes of Scripture is the incredible patience of our God. You see, the rebellious heart sees God stepping in and enacting judgment as wrong, and God is cruel, and we hate him, and we don't like him being mean. The redeemed heart goes, my goodness, how many times did he tell them to turn around? My goodness, how many times is the Lord going to go, hey, don't do that. Hey, return to me. Turn around, put down that idol. Quit it. Quit it. Quit it. Quit it. See, the wicked heart only sees the punishment come. The the redeemed heart goes, how slow to anger you really are. And it's shocking when you see it. Not only did Jonah hear from the Lord again, the Lord did not change what he told Jonah to do. This is so much mercy. Jonah wasn't It didn't do what God asked them to do. And God didn't go, well, you know what, Jonah? Since you're so ridiculous, I'll lessen what I asked you to do. I'll I'll change it up because you just don't listen. So I'm going to make it easier and it's going to be less involved. And you're just going to be demoted in what I'm going to ask you to do. But he did not do that. He told him to do the same thing. Mercy upon mercy upon mercy. And this time, Jonah obeyed. He did not make excuses. He had just experienced mercy so close to home. So he obeyed. And you, you heard the message, right? It wasn't a very complicated message. It was actually a tweetable message. It was eight words. You could tweet that. You know, I do wonder, cynically and sarcastically thinking, did Jonah mumble it? Did he not want Nineveh to hear it? What, Jonah? We can't hear you. You said something about destruction. 
Went toward the desert by the middle of the shrine. What was that? Eight words. Now, I don't know how everything went down, but I do know, according to what is written, they heard God's word. In the middle of this huge hustle and bustle of a city, people's eyes were taken off of their immediate situation and the imminent situation was shown to them. When you and I are brought close to the uncomfortable question of eternity and our mortality, when you and I were in the midst of our, everything is so important right now, and God shocks us and our eyes lift and we slow down for a second and we consider the judgment of God. It's uncomfortable, right? Like, to go that I'm not, I'm not immortal. Like, I will, I will die. And if the scripture is correct, it's appointed once to die and then the judgment. And so to actually have to slow down and go, you know what? All this stuff seems super important. All this stuff seems super important. And then you hear 40 days from now, your city's going to be destroyed. You have to lift your head and go, is this guy for real? In my limited knowledge, in my limited experience, in my limited wisdom, could there be someone who has an unlimited amount of wisdom, an unlimited perspective, and an unlimited vision for what life could be? And I have to go from this to this. Do I mock Jonah and keep going about my life in Nineveh? Do I deny Jonah because I don't feel what he has to say? I ain't feeling what Jonah's saying. I don't like that he's talking about judgment. I hate that. So it's probably not true. Right? It's what we do. We do it via social media now. We do it every time we see somebody suggest something we don't like. We just say, well, then it's not true because I don't like it. And in this moment, Nineveh came face to face with an imminent meeting with the judgment of God because of their wickedness and their sinful ways. Despite how few words Jonah uses, the people of Nineveh hear God's word. And they don't just hear it. Now hear me, Highland. <laughs> we live in a day and an age where people hear God's word all the time. We have podcasts. You probably listen to your radio station today on the way in. You listen to some pastor who's miles and miles away and you can hear it. And, and you opened your streams in the desert and you opened your Oswald and you opened your Bible and you read your daily plan. You hear it, hear it, hear it. But do we know that Jesus said that we are blessed when we do it? When we obey it? When we believe the words we have heard. See, Nineveh didn't just hear God's word, they believed God's word, and it led to something. It led to action. It led to repentance. You see, faith and repentance go together. One doesn't exist without the other. Where there is faith, there is repentance. And where faith has shown up, repentance follows. This idea of, I have been thinking incorrectly about who God is and who I am. I've been thinking incorrectly and moving and living in a way that is not pleasing to the Lord. And because he has shown himself, 
I am faced with the very real invitation to respond to what I have just heard. Even the king gets in on it. And the king's letter is a very interesting picture of salvation, to be, to be honest. The king steps off of his throne. You follow me? When we recognize who Jesus is, we step off the throne. If he truly is not just a teacher, but he's the king of everything, we step to the side and say, have your place. He removes his own royal robe. He takes off his ways, his markings, me, me, me. And it says that he puts on sackcloth. And he sits on ashes, showing a deep level of sorrow and despair, owning his wickedness, not putting a mask on, not running around going, let me, let me try and put some makeup on before I go and sit in, ash, in ashes and put on a, a sackcloth and, and look miserable. Let me, no, he owns it. And then he announces it and says, hey, let's not miss this opportunity. Let's not miss this opportunity to respond. If God's judgment is real and it's true, I don't want to miss this. I want to own my wickedness. And maybe, just maybe, he has one ultimate hope. Remember in verse 9? Who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. Not even being aware of how God would respond, Nineveh repents and hopes that maybe God, maybe this will keep him from destroying us. Maybe our wickedness will be, will, in our turning from it, will be enough for him to relent. And they didn't really know that they were actually in line with the way God describes himself. In Exodus chapter 34, this is the way God reveals himself. Verse 6, the Lord passed in front of Moses calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. You know that it's good news that God does not excuse the guilty, right? We don't want it for our own selves, but right? If a judge were to just let guilty people go, would we be standing there applauding? No, we'd want that judge removed, wouldn't we? But when it comes to us personally, right? It's okay to say, yeah, he already knows what we think about him. But what they didn't know is that God is a God of his word and he does the very thing he says he will do. Verse 10, when God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. Their guilt had reached his ears and his judgment for them was coming. But his forgiveness is what they were met with. Mercy. 
mercy. See, we like the New Testament. We don't like the Old Testament. Mercy is marking the scriptures over and over and over. Evidence that something had moved from simply being hearing to believing is a change in what we run after. Nineveh put down their violent ways, not because it was just hurting them, but because it did not honor the Lord. You see, when you and I place our faith and we believe that God is who he says he is, we, re- we turn from these actions that we have thought, oh man, this is what it's about. We turn from them, not because we see how destructive they are, but because we just at the end of the day know that it doesn't honor the Lord. You see, as Christ followers, we operate under a new set of questions. Well, I feel like it makes this sense to do these things and to be this way. As a Christ follower, the new set of questions is, does it honor the Lord? And here's what I have determined. I have found that people will run to people who will affirm them in what they think honors the Lord rather than looking in the Scripture. Rather than looking in his word and allowing God to speak for himself, we would rather run to finite individuals with limited knowledge, limited wisdom, limited experience, and we just go, please tell me what I want to hear. Because I don't need, I I don't want to hear about my sin. I don't want to hear about judgment. I want to hear that I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. But what about what we need to hear? Is what we need to hear more important than what we want to hear? That's going to be your debate. That's going to be your wrestle the rest of your life. In Jonah chapter 4, had we, uh, had we ended with chapter 3, it would have been, all right, good, everybody repented, the Lord loves, mercy's great, everything's good, we're all happy. And then there's Jonah chapter 4. <laughs> I was talking to a guy this morning at a coffee shop, and he was like, what's your understanding with chapter 4, man? Is like the branch, the, the nations, and this thing, and is the, what's the worm? Is the worm like the devil? And is the, the, I mean, he just had a bunch of questions about Jonah chapter 4. Good, right, you should. Jonah chapter 4 is a mess. It is a hot mess. Just listen to these words. This change of plan greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back and destroy people. Just kill me now, Lord. I would rather be dead than alive if what I predicted, did you catch that? What I predicted will not happen. God, I'm going to look like a fool. Kill me now. End it. Let's get it over with. These people, they heard me tell them 40 days, destruction, And here you are being compassionate and slow to get angry. It's funny, you know, because he learned that scripture. He basically quotes Exodus 34 because he's learned it from childhood. And it's funny when those things that we've learned from childhood actually play out. We're not happy about that. Right? Like we don't like it. We don't like when mercy is extended to someone we don't deem worthy 
of mercy. Oh, but we sing songs about mercy. Mercy's fallen on me. It's like a wave and it's crashing over me and it's, it's lovely. And that person just cut me off. I hate them. They should be dead. But your grace, God, I will sing about it all the days of my life. Did you just point that middle finger at me? I'm going to come over there. I'm going to get you. I love the mercy. This is what we do. Jonah was coming face to face with the reality that God is a God of his word. He is who he says he is, and Jonah doesn't like it. Jonah found displeasure in something God was pleased by. God, who has every reason to be angry and and, and enact his judgment because all sin is against him. He has every reason to be upset, but yet he shows mercy. And Jonah, who has every reason to be excited about God's mercy, is angry that God would show mercy. Jesus was at a party one time with some Pharisees, and the Pharisees were all asking him questions. And then this lady busts through the door She hurries to Jesus' feet and she pours out these expensive perfumes and oils on his feet and begins to wash his feet with her tears and the oil. And the Pharisees are like, this is ridiculous. And Jesus looks at them and he goes into story mode. And he says, let me tell you a story. There's a guy and there are two different guys that owe him a certain amount of money. One owes him 500 bucks, one owes him 50 bucks. And seeing that neither of these dudes could pay their debt, he kindly forgave them both. And then he speaks to the Pharisees and says, so who do you think would love the man more? The Pharisees are like, duh, the one with the bigger debt. And Jesus says, you're right. You are right. And this woman, look at her, she's at my feet, completely disregarding all of your rules and your ways, and she is overwhelmed and showing me this gratitude. And you haven't done anything. Like, you don't even care that I'm in the room. You haven't done any of the least of the things, like just a little bit of oil, a little bit of water. You've done nothing. And then he points in verse 47, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. She wasn't earning forgiveness by washing Jesus' feet. She knew she had been forgiven. And her response was extravagant. So she has shown me much love, but a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this guy who thinks he can forgive sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In this scenario, Jesus isn't suggesting that you and I need to go out and sin a whole bunch so then we respect his grace. (laughs) He's not saying, hey, go out, do a bunch of dumb stuff, and then come to me for forgiveness, because then you'll feel the weight of your sin. See, the main character of the story is not the man who owed 50, not the man who owed 500. The main character of the story is the one who forgave the debts. Jesus was pointing to a recognition that I owed something, you owed something that could not be paid, and he kindly forgave our debts. And a crazy result of understanding that forgiveness is this undignified, extravagant love for Christ. But here's the weirder result of this. 
a strange result to knowing the mercy of God. Because I understand what I've been forgiven of is I actually love people who are sinning. I actually love people who are sinning against me. I actually love people who sin differently than me. You see, we grow in our compassion and mercy by acknowledging our sin and the depth of it, not by ignoring it. Because it's only when you acknowledge the depth of your sin that you see the need for the cross, that you see the need for grace, that you see the need for mercy. Part of the reason I don't think we're very merciful to each other is because we've never experienced mercy. You know what we do in the United States when we offend somebody or we're offended? We go to another church, right? We just leave. Ah, you offended me, I'm out. Ah, I offended you, I would rather not have a hard conversation, so I'm out. And it just fuels this non-merciful way of dealing with each other. And it's ridiculous because it's a mark of people who know mercy is you show mercy. A strange result of knowing the depth of my sin is showing mercy to people who are in the midst of theirs. Ignoring my sin does not grow my compassion for people. It, in fact, I think it dampens it. I think it squashes what real mercy and compassion look like. Prejudices, racism, favoritism, my extreme sense of nationalism, my personal bias, my preference, my way or the highway attitude are laid completely bare before the cross of Christ. And because people don't see as I do, I am not able to build walls because the walls between me and God have been torn down. And it's at the cross of Christ that I beg Jesus to reveal any thought or pattern or way of life that does not honor him. There's a a rapper, his name's um, Kristen, I can't remember his last name, but he's he's got this song, and it's it's called Stop Me. And it's fantastic. It's a great song, um, but as you're listening to it, it sounds like what would be the typical American sentiment of stop me. Just try and stop me. And he's going through, he's like, stop me, stop me. Somebody stop me, stop. I mean, he's just doing this thing. And it sounds like what you're used to. Like, go ahead, try and stop me. I'm gonna do my thing. I'm gonna do whatever I want. And then it flips and it says, and he says, Lord, if I'm doing it wrong, then please stop me. How dangerous a prayer to pray, right? Because we love our ways. We only want our ways. We only want our things. We only want our thoughts. We only want our stuff. And if we dare pray, God, please show me if I'm doing it wrong. Because if you alone hold the words to eternal life, then I need those words more than I need my felt needs met or my desires met or my, my, my longings met. I need you to speak. And at the cross, we are begging Jesus with the uncomfortable confrontation 
If my way of thinking is not honoring to you, squash it. Kill the things in me that are killing me and not honoring you. Jonah is an uncomfortable confrontation with that way of thinking. Jonah thought, these people don't deserve anything. Jonah thought, God only works on my terms. Jonah thought, his words were what mattered most, not God's plans. And at the end of the day, Jonah was looking at God and said, you've done things wrong. Which is a very dangerous place to find yourself It's a very dangerous ground to look at the Lord and go, you do things wrong, and I know better. And in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah is confronted with all of his incorrect thinking, and the Lord says to Jonah, you are wrong. We don't like that, do we? We think our prejudices, our walls, the things we hate, God hates. And here, I'm I'm just going to be 100% real. There are people in the church who, when they find out somebody interprets Scripture this way versus this way, they start to hate them. Got a whole generation of people who are like, I don't want what the church has. I'm going to go over here. And I hate those people who are at the church. But they don't even see it. They think they're doing it right. (laughs) Right? And you got people over here, a church of people over here who are like, well, those guys are idiots. (laughs) We do it right here. You see how wicked our hearts are? If we could just own it and just go, Jesus, you've got to inform us because there is no way I cannot show mercy because of the mercy I've been shown. Jonah is angry and the Lord asks him, Is it right for you to be angry about my mercy? Starting in verse 5. Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged the worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it would wither away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. There he is again. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes! (laughs) Good old Jonah. (laughs) Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. (laughs) Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? And scene. That's what we end with. That's where it ends. That's the end of the story that we have. The rest is us going, well, what about, what about, what about? But God's question of shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? I mean, you got mad at a plant dying. A plant that I made. 
You didn't make that plant, and you're not furious over the fact that 120,000 people could have died at my judgment? I am furious at that idea. Jonah, you're wrong in your thinking. See, when the Lord deals with us in that way, we don't like it, which is part of the reason I believe we don't want God's word and we don't want church. We don't want community and we don't want to regularly read God's word because we don't want to hear we're wrong. We don't want people throwing themselves in front of us on our way to destruction. We want what we want and we don't want God's word. We don't want church. It makes sense, right? In a selfish day and an age and in a day when all you want is what you feel and what you long for and what your emotions say, you don't want to be wrong. So yes, avoid the scripture and avoid community. Boom. Done. When the Lord confronts us, it is to save our lives. And it's a blow to our pride too. As we close this morning... And as we consider these things, Jonah is ever only truly happy when he has that branch over his head. And that when we're happy, it's only when God is blessing us. It's only when I've got my blessing that I'm happy. Yet the Lord was the one who arranged the storm. He arranged the fish. He arranged the worm. He arranged the hot wind. But God only works for my comfort. The Lord was breaking Jonah free from a Jonah-centered life that was a hard-hearted life and a merciless life. The Lord will do the same to us to save us from ourselves and to point to him as most glorious. What about you? Who is it that you would be upset by if God said, I am going to change their life and they are going to run to me? Who does that just tick you off that they would repent and get right with God? It would just make you so angry if God showed them mercy. Who is it? Because that's real. That's real talk. Remember, we're going we're gonna to sing songs about mercy, Right? We're going to sing songs, and then we're going to walk out, and then the rubber's going to hit the road, and am I going to remember that I've been shown extravagant mercy so that I can show extravagant mercy to others? One of the most telling evidences that we've been shown mercy is that we extend it, and one of the most telling evidences that we have not been shown mercy is that we don't extend it. Surprisingly, it is an awareness and an understanding of my sin that will grow real compassion and real mercy that crosses every kind of border there is. The walls that our sinful hearts have built up come tumbling down when we understand the mercy found at the cross. I must know the depth of my sin to know the depth of God's mercy, and I must know the depth of God's mercy to go to Nineveh. I'm sure there's plenty of Ninevehs that we've got in this room that you could go to if you understood the mercy you'd been shown. Jonah lacked love. Jonah lacked a deep understanding of his sin forgiven. 
And if you lack love, not just for those you like, but for those God brings across your path, chances are you need to sit at the cross. You need to sit with the scriptures. You need to sit with people who have been shown mercy and have extended mercy and go, how does this work in real life, man? Because that's what the gospel does. The mark of the gospel impact is mercy. Not just to those who show us mercy, but to those who are merciless towards us. We learn anything about Jonah and about God in Jonah is that he is not a God of second chances. <laughs> he is a God of fifth, seventh, 34th, however many, to get you to see him. And so I'm going to do something this morning that I don't normally do. But I just want everybody to just close their eyes. <clears throat> I know that I won't get to sit across the table from every single one of you in this room and I won't get to drink coffee with every single one of you and I won't get to hear every one of your stories. But there's something I'd like to say to those of you in this room who find yourself unable to extend mercy. And if that's you and you'd be honest with me, would you just open your eyes and just look at me? It's okay, I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. But you're just unable to show mercy. And I want you to hear this. As your pastor and as your friend, you have been shown more mercy than you ever deserved. You didn't pretty yourself up. You didn't make yourself look good before God. You didn't clean up your acts so that God would accept you. Jesus saw you ahead of time and he came running. Not to do this like swoop you up in the arms thing. It was to extend his arms on a cross and to take on the full judgment of God that you and I deserved. He took it all so that you don't have to taste a drop of judgment, but you are now standing under an umbrella of mercy. That's what I would say to you. This morning, if you want to respond to that and you're just like, I just need to let that go. There are going to be some leaders standing over here that would love to pray for you. I'll be standing over here. And if you're like, how does this work? I don't. But this is where the gospel meets real life, man. This isn't just an abstract idea. This is real. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Father, we love you. And as we sing these songs, would you go straight to the places in our heart that are dark, that are, we're, we're hiding from you, that we're hiding from others, would you go there and would you remind us of mercy? 
that it's actually when we turn to you in our sin that we find mercy. It's not when we, we run from you, we find harshness and we find death and we find pain and it's when we turn to you that it may not be easy and it may not be painless, but we at least find mercy. Thank you for mercy. So you hear me pray.